So to sum up, the hierarchy in order of most important to least important is one. That triathlon show, 120. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and today's episode is a solo episode where I'll talk about a great, great uh, article or presentation that I saw recently by one of the world's most eminent endurance sports scientists, Steven Seiler who you've heard me talk about before and you've heard my guests talk about him before on this podcast. This presentation is called Seiler's Hierarchy of Endurance Training Needs and in it Stephen covers the pyramid of endurance training which consists of eight layers where the big bottom layer is the number one most important thing in endurance training. Then we have the second and the third largest layers on top of that, also being very, very important. But then the further up you go, the less important each layer gets. And uh, we'll talk about what each of the- these layers are and uh, a bit more details about each of them, of course, in this episode. So take a moment right now to have a guess at what you think are the most important and the slightly less important things while we thank our sponsors. First, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They have big news. They just had their second peer-reviewed publication accepted, which is fantastic. They teamed up with Dr. Doug Lewis and Dr. Tamara Hugh-Butler and published an article called Considering Exercise-Associated Hyponatremia as a Continuum in the very prestigious British Medical Journal. The big take-home message of the paper is that the high sweat-sodium losses that some people see in exercise are influential in the development of hyponatremia during exercise. And uh, I'll talk about a couple of learning points, uh, more practical learning points, at the end of this episode. But for now, make sure that you bookmark the the article on Precision Hydration's blog, precisionhydration.com. And I'll also link to the article directly in the episode description and in the show notes. And go and read it later. It's a review of the paper that they published. So it's written in layman's terms, very easy to read and understand. But it is all evidence-based, which, as you know, we are big on on this podcast. So in any case, the findings do confirm how important it is to consume electrolytes with your hydration, especially if your sweat is uh, on the saltier side of things. And as you know, you can get your first box or tube of precision hydration product by using the discount code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. This episode is also sponsored by Stack. The Stack Zero is the world's quietest indoor bike trainer. One other great advantage in addition to that it's quiet is that you can fold it really small and low especially uh, so that you can store it under your bed for example, which is what I do. If you don't have the floor space to keep it set up all the time, this uh, saves you a lot of space and and uh, makes it makes your house more livable. You can even travel with it in a large travel bag. It's uh, that convenient. 
And as you know, it is already extremely affordable for the features you get with prices starting from 459 euros. And you can get a further 20% off. That's at least 90 euros if I did my math right. With the discount code TTS20. TTS20. And again, that's on stackzero.com. S-T-A-C-Z-E-R-O.com. All right, so let's get right into Siler's hierarchy of endurance training needs. So I already basically described what Siler's hierarchy is. It's a pyramid with the most important layers of endurance training at the bottom in order of importance. So the big broad bottom layer is the most important. Then we have uh, consecutively slightly narrower layers that are important, but uh, every layer up you go in the pyramid, the importance become less and less. And the position in the hierarchy is that you should focus on the big things at the bottom of the pyramid and that will uh, get you most of the way to where you want to go with your endurance performance goals. Before going into, into any more detail, uh, to make sure that you understand how credible Steven Seiler is, let me introduce him a little bit. He's an American sports scientist who lives in Norway and has done so for a very long time. He's very, very famous for his uh, work in endurance sports science uh, in Norway. Among other things, he's famous for doing a ton of great research on polarized training. And uh, his CV is uh, as past dean of the Faculty of Health and Sports Scientist at the University of Agder in uh, Norway. But now he works mostly as a senior research consultant for the Norwegian Olympic Federation. And he's on the executive board of directors at the European College of Sports Science. So I tried to get him on the show a couple of times. haven't succeeded so far. But uh, I want to bring you his information anyway. So I do this review of his work. Of course, a link to the presentation of the endurance training needs, the hierarchy of endurance training needs. It's uh, mostly pictures, not so much text, which is nice. It's a a pretty easy read. So uh, I highly recommend that you go and have a look at that. The link will be in the episode description and in the show notes. So let's get into the bottom layer, the number one priority in the hierarchy, the most important thing of all in endurance training and in endurance performance. Have you made your guess already of what that is? It is volume of training. This is something that uh, Silo writes is a very, very well established uh, fact that volume of training is the most most important uh, layer. He does. Uh, he kind of ranks qualitatively how well or not well established each layer is. So I'll mention these for all the future ones as well. But basically, to give you a few examples from the presentation, there's a study on runners and their weekly mileage and how that correlated to to their velocity at a certain test I believe it is from 2500 recreational runners it might actually be from a race because I didn't look at the original study but basically what you can do is you go to the article and I can even post a picture in the show notes of it you'll start to see that as volume on the x-axis goes up from 
20 to 40 to 60 to 80 miles per week the pace that these runners uh, ran whatever um, distance it was or time it was at it comes becomes faster and faster so from a 12 minute or close to 12 minute miles at uh, close to zero running and it comes down and down and down there are four different charts here for different demographics but all of them come down and down and down until they start to plateau a bit after 80 miles per week but this is just one example from a very large data set of recreational runners that shows the importance of volume Another example that Seiler talks about to illustrate the importance of volume is a case study of Bentescari, who is one of the most successful female cross-country skiers of all time. She's a five-time world champion, Olympic gold medalist, 46 World Cup victories. And in the presentation, Seiler presents a chart of her annual training hours and how they correlate with her a max VO2 max test result each season. So in the chart you will see when you go and have a look at it that at 18 years old she was training 350 hours or so per year and then that goes up and up and up until around 26, 27, 28 is where she reach, reaches her peak at close to 800 hours per year. And those best VO2 max results per season, they are all clustered around that time between 26 and 31, which is the time when she trains at least 700 hours per year. So those are all her peak volume seasons, and those are all her peak VO2 max seasons. She, Her best VO2 max outside of those seasons is 70, and that is when she's training slightly less than 700 and uh, then all of the other results are at least 70 uh, 71 is the lowest but then a lot of 73s and 74 and 76 when she's training 750 800 hours per year so so it all it keeps going up and the vo2 max seems to correlate with the volume then we have a, a reference to a study that investigates uh, world class and national level sprint cross-country skiers and compare the world class with the national level skiers and it compares what their training intensity distribution is what's their percentage of low intensity moderate intensity and high intensity training their percentage of speed and strength training and what is uh, their total training hours they found that the big big difference in training was not the training intensity distribution uh, they, there was a small difference in uh, speed work relative to their training time, but the big difference was that they did more training hours, 30% bigger volume in hours per year. So that is yet another example of the importance of training volume. Then there's a nice chart of the annual training volume from champion athletes from different sports to compare endurance sports. And it shows that distance runners, their peak annual training volumes might be as low as uh, 550 or so hours per year. Whereas a cross-country skier, as we talked about, is uh, a bit more than 800 hours per year. Rowers might get close to 1,000 hours per year. Cyclists would do close to 1,200. And swimmers, 13 or close to 1,400 hours per year. So it shows that the less impact there is, the more hours you can and should do to be successful in any of those sports. Of course, for triathlon, 
this is a high volume sport combining cycling and swimming that are two high volume sports already and adding running to that that really makes you realize that our sport is one that really rewards high training volume the second layer in the hierarchy is high intensity training and this again is well established it's been around forever. For example, somebody like Paavo Nurmi, the world-class distance runner from the 1920s, did high-intensity training, and it has been researched since at least the 1970s when uh, a Swedish uh, scientist, Ostrand, started to research it a lot. But this is a question that, that Seiler and his colleagues are really trying to answer through various studies is there such a thing as an optimal way to structure your high intensity training and uh, i want to say right from the from the start that uh, personally i don't know that we can say that for sure yet but but there are definitely uh, pretty interesting indications that uh, that studies from seiler and his research groups and from others around the world really uh, show but we we definitely need to see a bit more before we can state that there is something uh, such as an ideal way to do high intensity training but uh, let's uh, talk about a few examples that uh, that are in the presentation as well and the first one is really interesting a uh, day styler and his group compared different versions of interval training accumulating 64 minutes in zone 3 versus 32 minutes in zone 4 versus 16 minutes in zone 5 and uh, they asked the participants of the study to rate their session rpe rate of perceived exertion for these different interval types and basically it was the same with for all of these sessions so it really didn't make make much of a difference if you accumulate a large amount of time in zone 3 versus a shorter amount of time at the higher intensity of zone 5. The way that this study was designed was that they had a control group that did only low intensity training, 4 to 6 sessions per week. So they increased their training time compared to the other groups by 15 to 20%. And then these other groups, they had two to three low intensity sessions per week and two sessions of these intervals, either four times 16 minutes in zone three, uh, four times eight minutes zone four and four times or four times four minutes in zone five. And they didn't really prescribe zones. They prescribed, prescribed complete each interval session with the highest average intensity possible for the entire session. So basically, Go out and do four times four minutes as hard as you can, but but keep that effort up so that you don't die after the first interval and have, have, have to struggle to get home. And these were cyclists that performed these, uh, these, uh, these study, by the way, they were the study subjects. So when they compare the results, the performance changes on things like VO2 max and the power at VO2 max, power at uh, 4 millimoles of lactate, which is roughly the anaerobic threshold, and time to exhaustion at 80% of VO2 max. They found that the group that did 4 times 8 minutes, which ends up being roughly zone 4, just above your, uh, your anaerobic threshold usually, they improved the most in all of these uh, parameters. And in most cases, they, these effects were very much statistically significant. I think that the 
Time to exhaustion at 80% of VO2 max. I'm not sure if that was statistically significant, but I know that all the other ones were. So VO2 max improvement changed by, for example, around 8%, it looks like, from the chart here. So I don't have exact numbers in front of me. In the 4 times 8 minute group, compared to 3 to 4% in the 4 times 4 and 4 times 16 and low intensity groups. So a clear difference there. And similar differences in power at VO2 max and uh, and power at uh, 4 millimoles of lactate. And interestingly, the distribution of individual response was in the 4 times 8 minute groups that, at that every individual in that group had at least a moderate effect, uh, a moderate response to the training. But in all the other groups, there were quite a few subjects that had only a trivial effect, so they didn't really respond that well to the training. So this uh, is a, an interesting study that indicates that there may be a sweet spot of what kind of intensity is the best. Of course, this is just one study, so we need to know more, as, as I said before, we can state anything for sure. But there are other studies as well. So one of them, and again, this is in the presentation, investigated 20 well-trained cross-country skiers, juniors, and they did eight weeks of high volume, low intensity uh, as a baseline training period. And then after that, they were divided into a group that did long intervals and one that did short intervals and a control group. And the control group added two additional low intensity sessions per week. The short intensity group did uh, two interval sessions per week at 94% uh, of max heart rate. So they were two to four minutes long intervals with 15 to 20 minute total work. The long intensity, long interval group did uh, two interval sessions per week at 91% of max heart rate. So that was intervals of five to 10 minutes and a total work duration of 40 to 45 minutes per session. Both of these again rated their session RPE and it was uh, the same uh, after these different kinds of intervals. But when they measured the changes in performance in, uh, and changes in uh, VO2 max and, uh, and VO2 uh, at uh, the lactate threshold, they found that the long interval group that did 91% of max heart rate or 5 to 10 minute intervals, they were on most of these parameters, again, they were statistically significantly better after, after this, uh, this period of long versus short versus control groups. So that again points to that there might be a high intensity training sweet spot at that slightly above the above the anaerobic threshold, 91% of max heart rate that uh, falls in that high zone four, depending on what kind of system you are using, of course. But it is above the anaerobic threshold, but it is not quite all out. It's not your lung busting 400 meter intervals on the track. It's uh, more so your mile repeats or something something along those lines. So, so that's kind of the takeaway. And looking back to the case study with Ben Tescari, the cross-country skier that uh, I mentioned previously, when they, for her entire career, her training intensity distribution showed that she had in the three upper zones, zone three, zone four, and zone five, she had 3.5% of her training time spent in zone three, 6% in zone four, and less than 1% in zone five. So that again goes to show that, uh, that zone four just may be a sweet spot, but 
that's just a case study, so don't put too much emphasis on that. But uh, this is still very, very interesting stuff. And definitely the high intensity training is well established. Exactly how? We still need to find out a bit more. But maybe those kind of longer but still above uh, anaerobic threshold intervals are the ideal uh, intervals to do. Obviously, you shouldn't... I don't think that you should choose to do just one kind of intervals, but but if you put your emphasis on something, I would definitely uh, be a proponent of, and and I do this in my coaching. Uh, I I do mostly slightly longer intervals that are still above the anaerobic threshold, but not so much 400 meter repeats on the track anymore, for example. All right, I'll go through these a bit faster now that we've covered the two most important ones. And uh, again, those were training volume and training high intensity training. Number three is training intensity distribution. And again, this is ranked as well established. So in most, this comes back to the concept of polarized training uh, that Steven Seiler is one of the pioneers of, uh, of researching. And in it, Polarized training is defined as having most of your training time below your first threshold, your aerobic threshold or VT1. So that is classified as zone one if you use a free zone system. Then between the two thresholds, between aerobic and anaerobic threshold, you do very little training. And uh, the high intensity training that you do is above the anaerobic threshold. So zone four, high zone four and zone five, if you use a five zone system, depending again on what kind of five zone system you do. It's uh, difficult with all the semantics and different people using different zone systems. But in the polarized training terminology, when we only discuss free zones, that high intensity training is zone three, moderate intensity is zone two. And moderate intensity is also often referred to as threshold training, as it is between the two thresholds. So without covering this i hope uh, getting too long long-winded with this there are studies from elite marathoners that showed that for example portuguese and uh, french marath- elite marathoners they distributed their training as 78% in zone 1 and 18% in zone 3 so the high intensity zone which is between 10k to 3k race phase for them and only 4% at uh, that zone 2 which would be where their marathon pace falls so race specificity not so much really they <laughs> they follow the polarized training model then it gets one interesting uh, argument against polarized training is that for example kenyan elite runners 5 to 10k runners and this has been published as well by the same authors as of that previous study they do a lot more work at that zone 2 so a similar amount of work in zone 2 as in zone 3 which uh, kind of throws a curveball to this whole polarized training uh, theory but the evidence from many from most studies still favor polarized training the kind of percentages that uh, that studies usually find is that 80% or so of training is done at that low intensity zone or even more and uh, a small percentage is done at zone 2 and the rest is done at zone 3 so that's high intensity zone so maybe for example 80% zone 1 5% zone 2 and 15% zone 3 
So that is something that we'll discuss actually in the next episode when I will interview David Warden on polarized training for triathlon. David Warden is a triathlon coach and he's very knowledgeable about the science of triathlon and he together with Matt Fitzgerald is actually coming out with a book on polarized training in the in the autumn that is called 8020 triathlon. So that is exciting and we'll learn more about polarized training in the next episode of course. One more thing that I should mention by the way before uh, stopping talking about polarized training and training intensity distribution as one of the key foundations of the endurance training needs is does this apply to recreational athletes and uh, yes it seems so uh, based on most studies although there isn't as much as there is on elite athletes uh, when it comes to recreational athletes but there are a few definitely a few studies for example one study in runners comparing runners that did 80% at zone 1 10 at zone 2 and 10 at zone 3 with another group that did 65% at zone 1, 25% at zone 2, and 10% at zone 3. And these groups were controlled for training load, and they calculated training load by multiplying training intensity by time at that intensity. So for example, 10 minutes at zone 3 might give you 30 points, and 10 minutes at zone 1, uh, 10 points, and 10 minutes at zone 2, 20 points. So they made sure that the training load was equal between the two groups and uh, they showed that uh, the improvements in a 10k cross-country race from uh, before the training intervention to after when they had trained at the intensity distributions, so a polarized model versus a threshold model, was significantly greater in the polarized group compared to the threshold group. And these were recreational runners, as I said. Another study compared polarized training uh, compared with a threshold model in uh, in trained cyclists, but recreationally trained cyclists. And in the polarized group, the total training time was 381 minutes per week, and it was 458 in the threshold group. It was significantly larger, so more than one hour difference per week. The training load was also significantly larger in the threshold group than in the polarized group. The percentages of time in zone was 80% in zone 1 and 20% in zone 3 in the polarized group. and So that's your 80-20 cycling in this case. In the threshold group it was 57% at zone 1 and 43% in zone 2, nothing at zone 3. So these were clearly polarized and threshold training methodologies, very different. And they compared all sorts of performance variables before and after and compared the changes and how they differed between groups. And that was a 40-kilometer time trial power and lactate threshold power and aerobic or anaerobic and aerobic threshold power, peak power output and also 95% exercise capacity, which was time to exhaustion at 95% of pre-training peak power output. And uh, for a lot of these, for example, for the aerobic threshold and the peak power output and the time to exhaustion tests, there were statistically significant differences between the two groups in the improvement. All of these uh, were improved more in the polarized group 
but uh, in not all of these were statistically significant due to the small sample size. But for example, a 40 kilometer time trial power improved by 8% in the polarized group and 4% in the threshold group. This still wasn't statistically significant due to the sample size. But when you look at these numbers in the polarized group, improvements at all sorts of things are 6 to 9% and it's 2 to 4% in the threshold groups, except for the time to exhaustion, which was 85% in the polarized group and 37% in the threshold group. So that gives you an idea of the range of improvement, even though not all of these things were statistically significant. I do get the question a lot of uh, as a triathlete, does, uh, is there an impact of having to train for three different disciplines uh, on uh, your training intensity distribution? What implications does that, that have? And uh, it's a question that I ask myself as well, to be honest. And I don't think there is a super clear cut answer to it, but that's something that we'll discuss in more detail in next episode uh, so that we have time to cover the the rest of the endurance training needs in the hierarchy on this episode. So stay tuned for that next episode, the interview with David Warden. Number four on the list on the hierarchy of endurance training needs is general periodization details from an annual perspective. This is another topic that we'll cover in detail in exactly a week from now when I interview John Keeley, who is an expert on periodization. But uh, briefly covered, there are a lot of periodization models, as you know. For example, reverse, block, nonlinear, undulating, fractal, conjugate sequence. And basically what Seiler says in the presentation is that these are just lots of scientific sounding ways to say variation, 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 but not too much variation. So, so that's uh, that's pretty funny, and and it is true in some of the articles by and publications by John Keeley that I've read to prepare for that interview. That's one of the main arguments against the the periodization models that we have. That uh, actually there is not a lot of evidence that periodization is any better than not having periodization. The evidence because when they have had control groups that are compared against periodized groups. The control groups have been training the same thing all the time, so completely monotonous training. And that proves that periodized training is better than training without any variation. But it doesn't prove that you need to have any sort of periodization plan. It proves that you need to have some sort of variation in your training and, and progression. But but that any sort of special scheme works, it, that's not something that we really know. And, and another argument against periodization is that yes, periodization models, they assume that physiological adaptations can be predicted based on the type of training that you do, basically the input that you put into the system. But that's not the case. Yes, you can control the training load parameters that you put into the system, but then there are things like genetic predispositions that control what you can get out of an athlete on different sorts of training. And other things that affect how an athlete responds to different sorts of training are what training they have been doing for years and years and years before so the training history and other history of exposure to different sorts of of stress and load then there are more transient aspects like your 
psychological, emotional states and your biological, physiological states. Like uh, So those are things that can change on a day-to-day basis, but that affect things a lot on a week-to-week basis. And even social and environmental variables, they affect the output that you get from this system that we can consider periodization. So these are all things that, that work together to to not really make training and improvements in endurance performance conducive to uh, to planning that far out in advance and, and having a strict system to, to work with. And one study that has recently shown this is uh, another Norwegian study by uh, somebody who is uh, obviously working closely with Steven Seiler. He's called uh, Øystein Silta. He's a PhD student and he had created a study that compared how different progressions of types of interval training resulted in different performance changes. And they had 63 athletes, which is a very good number, and compared having eight, having over a period of several weeks, uh, they were four-week mesocycles, and... uh, in one group, they did. They started with doing longer, uh, lower intensity intervals, so four times sixteen minutes at zone three, and then in the next mesocycle, the next four week period, they did four times eight minutes at zone four, and then four times four minutes at zone five. But then they had another group that did it the opposite way, so they started with the high intensity intervals, four times four minutes for four weeks, and then four times eight minutes, and then four times sixteen. And then they had a mixed group that did 4 times 16, 8 and 4 minutes for the entire period. So, And they found that there were no differences in performance improvements. All groups improved because they had a variation. But, uh, but there were no differences between groups in, in how much they improved. Which shows that there are many different ways in which you can improve. And, and the way that you periodize isn't necessarily super important. However, as we talked about in episode 112 in my interview with Chris Myers, it is important to have a plan and uh, and have basically a path that you uh, that you plan on going along as you train. And that doesn't mean that you need to be bound to a periodization scheme, but having that plan is important. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't plan what you're going to do, but don't get married to any methodology or or detail of periodization. And as since this general periodization details, it is number four in the hierarchy. It doesn't mean that it lack importance. It means that it's only it's less important than the the three first topics that we discussed. But it it still it still has value. And by the way, I forgot to mention this, but this is ranked uh, when uh, the other three that we previously discussed were all well established. Uh, Steven Seiler ranks periodization details as unclear but likely overrated. Layer 5 in the hierarchy is sports-specific and micro-periodization schemes. This is ranked as not established, but likely modest. And this is really, this is going to be very quick, because there isn't a lot to talk about here. When you look at the presentation, it's only a couple of slides. And basically what this means is, does it make a difference if you have... A day of training with a high intensity session, then a day of training with two low intensity sessions, and then another day with high intensity, compared to having a day of high intensity, then a day of another high intensity session plus low intensity, and then 
a day of low intensity. Uh, so basically how you on a micro scale order your workouts and do form small blocks that could even be like having back-to-back bike or back-to-back runs in a triathlon uh, perspective and uh, so this is there is some new evidence that supports these kinds of block training schemes and it may make a difference over time but too little research has been done so far to put it any higher up in the hierarchy so it is high up on the pyramid, of course, but that means that it has less importance than the things that are below it. Number six in the hierarchy, so getting even less important, is training stimuli enhancement like altitude and heat training. This is categorized as potentially important, but individual and condition specific. So we do know that that all the elite skiers that Seilers studies, they do altitude training. And so do most elite endurance athletes in the world at some point. And the reason is obviously that it works. But it's the final 1-2%. This is what Seiler points out as well in the presentation. And if they hadn't done their 800 annual training hours consistently over many years, that altitude training would get them nowhere on the world scene. It it wouldn't mean anything. So if we talk about return on investment, for example, for the amount of money that it would cost for an age group triathlete to go to altitude, you'd be much, much, much better off spending that money on something that gives you more time to train. And these are my examples, by the way, that I'm going to talk about now. These are not in Seiler's presentation. But for example, one thing that comes to mind is using some sort of food delivery. Uh, Make sure that you get healthy, good endurance approved food, of course. But you could, if you can order from Uber Eats some healthy food to save time, not having to cook every day, uh, if that gives you more training time, then that would be a much better investment than going to altitude. The same goes for house cleaning services. If you can get uh, a house cleaning service to come to clean every week and use that extra hour or two to go out and train, then that's also a much better investment. And about heat acclimation, it is definitely very important if uh, competitions are held under hot conditions, Uh, but uh, a five to seven day acclimation, acclimatization period Uh, has been shown to improve heat removal capacity and heat tolerance. Uh, So this is something that Seiler writes is uh, is pretty pretty easy to get right if you are racing in the heat. But uh, the effects of heat adaption on performance in normal uh, conditions are probably trivial, according to him. So so again, this all comes back to the same thing. Focus on working on those big layers of the hierarchy. The training volume the high-intensity training, and the training-intensity distribution. Those are the big things. And the layers we are discussing now, they are nice-to-haves that, uh, for the elite, become very, very important as well. But for most age groupers, they can even be, they can be important, but they can also become distractions, at least if you don't have the clear prioritization, which is why I make this episode, to make sure that you understand how much more important training volume, high-intensity training, and training intensity distribution is compared to these other smaller things in the hierarchy. Okay, so number seven penultimate item on the list is pace training and race training and they're very different things with pace training here Siler means 
learning to go at your your target race pace. So learning to feel uh, that race pace, learning to to perceive your body signals and and adapt your pace accordingly, and practice, practice, practice that race pace. Whereas race training is actually doing racing in training or doing races as that are more not a races but that you see as training opportunities because if you do for example draft legal racing in triathlon you're not going to go for the ideal distribution of effort you're going to try to stick to a pack and if that requires you to burn a lot of matches to stick to a wheel but then get off the bike with a group then you're going to have to do that so so those are two very different things but they both fall in this layer of the hierarchy both of these both pace training and race training can be potentially decisive if everything else is done right that's what Seiler categorizes these as but the emphasis here is if everything else is done right if you haven't put in the time you haven't put in the right in high intensity training you have done too much training in the gray zone of moderate intensity then this is going to have very marginal if any positive impact on your performance and your endurance improvements Finally, the top of the pyramid, number eight in the hierarchy, is tapering. This is categorized as potentially decisive if you have one isolated competition and everything else is done right. So for more on tapering, obviously that's something that I discussed in last episode. And you learned that uh, you can get a 3% performance enhancement from tapering. That That is, of course, not a guarantee. Uh, that's uh, something that you really need to learn how to to do a taper that works for you and there's a lot of variation there in what works for certain people and what doesn't so uh, i definitely agree with siler in that sense that this is not like the big lever that's going to make you a much better triathlete Uh, but definitely go back and listen to that episode anyway it was called tapering and peaking in triathlon the art and the science and it was episode 119 i so it is as much of an art as a science and one of the things that i talked about then is a study called the road to gold training and peaking characteristics in the year prior to gold medal endurance performance and that investigated what skiers and biathletes did both in the training a year before their world championship gold medal or their olympic gold medal but also specifically in the taper period And the study found that they decreased their training volume by only 4% in the second last week uh, before the race compared to uh, before that period. And 15% in the last week before the race. So a very small decrease and non-significant decreases in training volume in the taper. Which is much less than they would do if they were to follow the advice from research studies and, uh, and scientific gold standards that that we know of and since we're here talking about world championships and olympics and these athletes all won gold medals after this kind of taper uh, i think that we can safely say that this falls under the category one isolated competition not in the sense that they did have other world cup races for example maybe a couple of weeks or three weeks before these key races but they definitely all will have focused on winning the world championships and the olympics rather than the world cup races so they could have tapered differently if they would have wanted to 
and it goes to show the variance, the uncertainty there, and uh, which is why I definitely agree completely with Steven that this is the top of the pyramid. It is not one of the most important things in the endurance training needs hierarchy. So to sum up, the hierarchy in order of most important to least important is 1. Training volume, 2. High intensity training, 3. Training intensity distribution and specifically having a polarized training approach, 4. General periodization details from an annual perspective, 5. Sports specific and micro periodization schemes, 6. Training stimuli enhancement like altitude and heat. 7. Race training and pace training. 8. Taper before competition. And of those, the three at the bottom, and they are, and especially the two, I feel, are the ones that you should focus on. Training volume is the most important variable, and the second one is high intensity training, and the third one, which is important, but I do not believe that it is as important as the two before, because I think there are many ways to skin a cat there. The Kenyan runners are just one example, training intensity distribution. But if you get your training volume and your high intensity training right, you are 90 or 95% of the way there, so that's actually... That that's the whole point of this episode, and uh, but I hope that this has been insightful. I will of course link to the presentation, which will have references to all the studies that I've mentioned today. Some of them will be linked in the show notes as well, and the show notes, as usual, are on thattriathlonshow.com, where you can. I welcome you to leave your comments or questions on that show notes page, and hopefully we can get a good discussion going because I think. This may be one of the most important episodes that I've ever recorded. It is, uh, I'm very glad I did this episode and I hope that you enjoyed it. Remember to also check out the entire back catalog and archive of episodes. I get quite a few questions uh, asking about things that have been answered many, many times on the podcast before. So please go and have a look at the archives to find the episodes that may answer your questions because I've covered a lot already or my guests have in some cases, I have in others. Uh, And uh, while you're there, you can always uh, purchase a training plan or sign up for coaching, which will give you priority support and uh, get fast answers to any questions you have if you don't have time to listen to all the episodes. And that would help me pay for my chiropractor and acupuncture bills that are coming in at the moment as I try to try to rehab my knee a bit. Uh, but uh, all joking aside, uh, definitely go and check out those previous episodes because there is a lot of great information there if you missed it. And a, lo- a lot of listeners actually listen to go back and start listening again from the beginning to to reinforce in their memory what they've learned previously, even if they've already listened to the episodes. So it's well worth doing. Thank you so much to Stack for sponsoring this episode, even with spring finally here in most countries. I have always and will always be a big fan of doing some of your training indoors to get really, really specific and be able to do structured interval workouts, that high-intensity training that we talked about, without any interruptions. And a great trainer is a must for this, and the Stack Zero is everything that you'd want from a trainer. 
The advantage of it being silent cannot be overstated. For example, you can get up in the early morning without and train without waking up your entire family. Or you can even watch your favorite show on Netflix and actually be able to hear what they say and, and uh, not just having to rely on subtitles. And thank you to Precision Hydration for sponsoring the episode. Remember to take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to learn if you are a salty sweater or not. And uh, to go back to that publication and their uh, layman's terms review of their own publication, a couple of their key takeaways was that hyponatremia can be caused purely by overdrinking, but also by a combination of those heavy salt losses through sweating and only moderate fluid consumption. The traditional view has been that hyponatremia is only caused by overdrinking and that salt loss in sweat is irrelevant, and uh, this is uh, not correct uh, according to their publication. And the second point that they make is that for hyponatremia to occur, you have to dilute the available sodium in your body, and the available sodium is very different from person to person, and that depends again on how fast you lose it through your sweat. So, go and check that out. It's linked to down below in the episode description. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.